Our scripture reading is a long narrative. Because it's narrative, you don't need to stand. I will read it for you, but listen, absorb as much of this text as you can. We're only going to look at a couple of features in it. But this is one, this is Matthew's account, and each of the four Gospels have a complete account of the trial of Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today. This is the trial of the King, Christ's trial before his crucifixion. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What, what is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Jesus stood before Pilate, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. And when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not... Hear how many things they testify against you. But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, that is the feast of unleavened bread, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they then had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barnabas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. The word of the Lord. This is the trial of the king. The purpose of a trial is to determine justice, to find that which is right, that which is true, that which is indeed the case, and act upon it 
according to inscripturated, settled law. In other words, to adjudicate it, to term whether it is guilt of the part of the party accused or innocence, or at least not guilty. It is the duty of a trial to come up with the verdict and then upon the verdict issue it to the proper authorities for the penalty to be executed. And this is what we see in the case of Jesus. What we see Jesus being tried before is two authorities. Viewed ideally, he was viewed in this trial in God's court, that is the Hebrew court, the court of God's chosen people, the court of the covenant people. In fact, the court of the very high priest and elders of Israel who were the direct descendants of Moses and the council of 70 and Aaron, the high priest of ancient Israel. This was God's court. This was where the word of the Lord was the supreme law. He was also tried in Caesar's court, man's court, the court that had been devised by human reason and human understanding and a human sense of justice. So what they're seeking to find here is the very best case that can be made for justice. All courts tend to high ideals. They operate according to set procedures. They have things that have long been determined what is fair and what is unfair so that the final verdict will be true. It'll be truth. And that truth then will be acted upon according to the law's penalties. We see an awful breakdown in God's court. The prophets had cried out for centuries that God's priest and his prophets and even the king had become quite corrupted. If you follow the course of Jesus' trial, I'll try to sketch this out for you a little bit because it's kind of uh, difficult. If you put all the four gospels together and work with a really good scholar like Alfred Edersheim, who worked this out over a century and a half ago, you can see the flow of the trial. There's still some places where certain events seem to happen before others, and it's difficult sometimes to harmonize it completely, but, but all the material is there. This is the ordeal that Christ had at his trial. The first thing they did was they bound him in the garden and took him to Annas. It says in the scriptures, the high priest, but, but he was not the high priest at the time. He had been the high priest for about seven years. He had five sons who had been high priest. And this now the high priest Caiaphas is his son-in-law. But you know who Annas really was, was the godfather of Judea especially the godfather of Jerusalem. He lived in a massive mansion up on the hill right next to the temple complex. And they took him there in the middle of the night to his house because he was the one who had instigated the conspiracy against Christ to have him arrested, brought to this trial, and hopefully executed anyway. Annas got a large percentage of the money that was made in the temple markets. You remember what Jesus had just done to the temple markets a couple of days earlier. He's now standing before this fellow who really technically has no 
religious authority, but he has all of the political authority and he has the muscle. And as he stands before them, this is really probably where the real trial of Jesus took place because it was here they put all their witnesses together. They tried to find good witnesses. They, they, they worked the case up. They worked in the middle of the night, which was illegal, and, and waiting for the crack of dawn for that old rooster to crow. And when he crowed, they were going to then open the assembly, which was the official assembly. And the next place they took him then down was to the Sanhedrin Hall, which was next to the house of Caiaphas, the actual high priest at that time. And before him there, they put together the official trial. And they came and said, what is your verdict? The verdict is guilty. What is your sentence? The sentence is death. What was the issue? There was one question at issue in the Jewish law court of the Sanhedrin. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He did things that were the prerogative of God himself. He claimed to be God. In fact, he claimed to be God right there in the hearing. He said, when a day is coming when you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of God. That's Psalm 110. And coming in the clouds of glory. That's Daniel 7. Both of those were unmistakable passages that everybody in the room knew applied to the King of Kings, the Son of David, the Son of God. And so he was, he was tried and found guilty. He had only one thing going for him. And that was what the prophet Isaiah had said 700 years earlier. And that is when he was tried, no deceit was found in his mouth. In other words, everything that Christ testified to and every, was truth and everything that was testified against him was falsehood. But they found him guilty. So legally, technically, he's guilty. This is the court. There's no higher court of Jewish authority. But the Jews lacked the power of the sword. Rome retained that for itself. And any vassal state like Israel was at the time, or Judea was at the time, they had to go and get Roman authority to execute. If they would have executed him, they would have done like the Old Testament law says, they would have stoned him. But it was Roman crucifixion. That was the penalty at this time. So they have to get Roman permission. This necessitates now a second trial before the Roman court. The Roman court of law was run by Pilate. Pilate was a governor. He was not a king. He was a governor. A governor basically was one who, who worked in a province over a certain jurisdiction where he was kind of the police force and oversaw the military operation, the police operation, and the tax collecting operation. A nice job description. He had this particular authority. And Pilate was very, very concerned that things be handled well in his court. The main thing he, he had in his job description was he had to keep the peace of Rome, the great Pax Romana. He had to make sure there's no riots, make sure there's no sedition, make sure there's no uprising, make sure everything is smooth. And in, in the ideal situation, Caesar would never hear what's going on. Everything would be peace and quiet in that area. So that was his concern. And so the charge they brought against 
Jesus before Pilate was not a charge that said he had, was a blasphemer, that he had blasphemed the name of God by claiming to be God, but he, they brought the charge of sedition. And they finally brought Pilate into it to the extent that he said he couldn't uh, even make a judgment because they were going to implicate him in Jesus' crimes. If you let him go, if you let Jesus go, you're no friend of Caesar. So the issue in Pilate's court, which involved, by the way, the Jews were so religious, they wouldn't even go into the Gentile Roman court. They stayed out on the outside. And if you read the, care, the text carefully, Pilate had to come and go. He went out there when they called him. He took Jesus in for a private interview. And a lot of the conversation we don't have time for this morning, or this afternoon, but it, it's there about Jesus and Pilate's conversation. Pilate was a brilliant man. And as he heard this, he realized that there was no guilt in this person. Pilate knew what a seditionist looked like. He had seen rebels. He knew what somebody whose job was to overthrow the government of Rome, he knew what they looked like. And Jesus didn't look like that at all. Barabbas did. Barabbas had actually done that and been convicted. And the cross was already waiting for Barabbas along with two malefactors. So back and forth, this trial goes. And the key question here is, are you a king? And Jesus, of course, said, you say I am. But he explained to Pilate about his kingdom. It's not of this world. It's a kingdom that is not military and other things. And Pilate could see right away that Jesus was not guilty of any kind of sedition in any shade of sedition and rebellion. The prophet Isaiah in that same passage earlier had said this. He said, he had done no violence in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. He had done no violence. There's no deceit in his mouth. He wasn't a blasphemer and he had done no violence. He was not a seditionist. He was innocent. And so Pilate's verdict was I find no fault in this man. He's innocent. Just before we leave this and speak for a moment as I close, I kept thinking over and over what it must have been like for the high priest of Israel to be standing there ruling face to face against the real high priest of the people of God. And what must it have been like for Pilate a petty potentate at best, standing there facing the king of the kings and the Lord of the lords. They really didn't have a clue. But Peter explained it all. 52 days later, Peter, remember in the text how he was following afar off and warming his hands and denying Christ and swearing that he didn't know him and all that. That Peter, 52 days later, Pentecost in, in the days of the of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ added in there, he was standing before this very group, this very mob, these very elders, this, this very Roman government, and saying, you by wicked hands have taken and slain the Son of God. Because here's the real issue. There was not just the corrupt Jewish court had found him guilty of blasphemy and called for his death. 
There was not just the Roman court that found him innocent and Pilate sought to release him. They tried to find a way. He said, what about Jesus compared to Barabbas? What do you think? And that mob said, crucify him, crucify him. The real court, the real trial, the real great verdict that was taking place on this day was a divine verdict. It was God's court where God was by the, his determinate counsel and foreknowledge, Peter said, God Almighty was working out a transition whereby he could take the sins of his people and lay them upon an innocent, perfect, beloved son in whom God was well pleased and have him be that sacrificial Passover lamb for his people. It was God that was transacting true justice because the death of Christ enabled God to be just and the justifier of those who come to God by faith. And that's exactly what happened. This was God's eternal plan. This was God's justice system at work. And oh, what a judge, full of mercy and compassion and love and long-suffering and forbearing and grace abounding to sinners such as we.